Welcome to the Peace Catalyst podcast, where we share stories to inspire, uplift, and encourage you in your peacemaking journey. I'm Becca Teibel, and I work with Peace Catalyst International here in the Washington, D.C. area. And as always, I'm joined by my amazing co-host, Allie Bernison. Hey, everyone. I'm Allie, and I work with Peace Catalyst in Los Angeles, California. By the way, if you have enjoyed the Peace Catalyst podcast at any point in listening to us, please do us a favor and take some time to rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. It helps boost our visibility and encourages others to give us a listen. So this week, we are very excited for our conversation. We're chatting with the 2022 Rick Love Young Innovators and Peacemaking Awardees, Halima Ahmad and Alexander John Paul Lutz. Halima Ahmad is a social development professional with over 10 years of experience working and volunteering in the development sector. She's the executive director and co-founder of Acres of Peace, a nonprofit dedicated to empowering individuals and communities to live a prosperous life and promoting a just and peaceful society. Passionate about personal and community development, peace building, gender justice, and upholding the rights of women as well as integral human development, Halima has acquired extensive experience executing peace building and human capacity building programs for projects funded by the U.S. Embassy in Nigeria, the EU delegation in Nigeria, UNFPA, MacArthur Foundation, Tony Blair Institute for Global Change, and the Carter Center, amongst others. Halima is also a senior research associate and facilitator with the Dawa Institute, where over the last seven years, she and her team have researched and analyzed over 200 religious arguments used in recruitment into violent extremist groups. Halima is a fellow of the Cardinal Onayikin Foundation for Peace and is a Master of Global Affairs candidate at the University of Notre Dame, USA, specializing in international peace studies. So excited to hear from Halima and the other awardee, who is Alexander John Paul or J.P. Lutz, um, is a student at Mercer University, majoring in international affairs, political science, and history. In his studies, Alexander has focused on the role of religion in matters of war and peace and has authored papers on related topics all of which he presented at conferences over the past year in the hope that they might soon be ready for publication. JP is also involved in a number of student organizations, serving as a member of the Undergraduate Honor Council and as the president of Bears Engaged Across Religions, Mercer International Affairs Organization, and the Mercer Mock Conference Association. Beyond Mercer, Alexander has interned with the National Council on U.S.-Arab Relations and Churches for Middle East Peace. Influenced by his Quaker faith tradition and his experiences working alongside Muslim community leaders to advance the cause of religious tolerance in the Republic of Georgia, JP has decided to pursue a future in peacebuilding. Since his return from Georgia, Alexander has worked to invigorate grassroots peacebuilding efforts in his local community, beginning with the revival of a student organization designed to foster interfaith dialogue at Mercer University. So can't wait to hear from both JP and Halima. We'll be talking about 
their own peace building work and how they're bringing people together across religious differences and other differences too. And this week, our peace quote is by Nelson Mandela. It says, if you want to make peace with your enemy, you have to work with your enemy. Then he becomes your partner. Thank you so much, Halima and JP, for joining us on Peace Catalyst podcast. We're so excited and honored to be talking with both of you today and learning more about your stories and your work, um, especially as recipients of the Rick Love Peacemaker Award in 2021. Um, so I'm wondering if each of you could share a little bit about how that award has been helpful for you and your multi-faith, interfaith peacemaking, and maybe how, perhaps how has it impacted you on a more personal level as well? Um, so I'm wondering if JP, would you mind answering that question first? And then we'd love to hear from you as well, Halima. Yeah. Um, so I think that I should disclose, uh, I actually haven't had the opportunity to use the funding from the award yet, because the way that the organization that I run at Mercer, Bears Engaged Across Religions, works is that every spring, uh, and I hope to keep this moving forward after I graduate, uh, we do sort of an interfaith peacemaking training book club. Uh, last year, we read Interfaith Just Peacemaking by Susan Brooks Thistlewaith. And we had a group of people from all sorts of different religious backgrounds and denominations and confessions who came and uh, lent their voice and opinions to that discussion where we were able to learn about you know, these basic principles of, of just peacemaking. The, the book we read is uh, riffing off of the work of Glenn Stassen, who wrote Just Peacemaking. And uh, what we do in there is we learn sort of these basic principles of peacemaking, and we get these different faith perspectives on them. Uh, and we want, uh, as an organization, to be able to get everyone to engage with those different perspectives and takes on those, those peacemaking ideas uh, that are seen as sort of foundational to the vocation. And going forward in the spring, um, we're looking to do another book club. Uh, we've yet to make our selection yet, but what I'd hope to use the Rick Love Award for uh, is to be able to make it so that we can have more people participate this year and there won't be any kind of financial burden that they incur by doing so. Uh, because books, of course, can yet to be a little pricey, especially if they're academic books. Uh, and what I'd hope to be able to do would be, uh, you know, to subsidize the, the cost it would, uh, it would incur for some people to be able to participate so that we could hopefully have uh, about maybe 15, 20 people and have hopefully about 10, 15 of them participate without having to pay anything to do so. And then I guess I can talk also for a little bit about how the, the Rick Level Award has impacted me personally. Um, and, and on that front, I would say really it's just, uh, it's helped to crystallize this vocational calling that I have to peacemaking. And I, I think I hope to continue to be able to pursue it further uh, and to engage in it as a profession. Uh, for the time being, I think the biggest impact of the of the award has been that, uh, you know, it's uh, it's confirmed for me that this is something that you know I really do want to do, and it's something that I think I can I can feasibly do as well. Yes, um, I kind of agree with um, JP with regards to how um, the Rick Love Award, and I mean for me as well, um, that recognition. For me, it just 
highlight the importance of this work. It shows me that um, even though I know before, but it further reinforces that understanding that this work is so important and important enough that people such as um, Rick Love would be so passionate about it while he was alive and that um, Peace Catalyst as an institution and organization would be willing to continue to invest in this area because of how important it is. Um, also, something that was quite profound for me um, was the focus on youth. Um, who have been working in this space um, for a minimal amount of time, like myself and JP, and others who have been working in this space for quite a long time, for decades. And I think um, that recognition of the intergenerational need for the work is actually quite poignant because uh, what we see in some areas, and we've not seen this enough in um religious peace building or inter interreligious peace building as we have seen in climate change advocacy for example where we have a lot of youth and children really advocating and putting in work and being supported to continue to advocate and make um, changes and impact in that area. But when we look at the area of interreligious peace building, um, generally it's the older generation, if I'm to put it that way, that are involved in this work. It's more of the religious leaders, the top echelon of religious organizations and orders. And um, the, the concern with that kind of approach is that with time, we do not have people who would be able to take over from these um, um, top sports leaders in this area. So the, the recognition of youth who are also working in this area and providing support for, for them, I think is a very good move um, by Peace Catalyst. And I think um, it's also very reassuring regarding the role that um, youth have to play when it comes to um, interreligious peace building and Muslim-Christian relations and some of these other kind of work. Thank you, Halima and JP. Thank you so much for that um, insightful reflection on that important point. Um, and it's really incredible to have the chance to hear from both of you as youth who are working in interreligious peace building um, and really paving the path forward um, for your generation and then um, being able to also collaborate with those older generations as well. So thank you so much for sharing that. and. Um, yeah, I would love to hand it over to you, Halima. Um, I know that you guys have some questions that you'd like to ask each other and would love to um, hear more about um, both of your work and your journeys. Yeah, um, I think it's also important for me because um, JP and myself come from different parts of the world and we've been um, operating and working in different contexts. And so um, even for me, it's quite interesting and I'm willing to learn um, what his own experience has been. And so uh, my question to JP would be, um, what has your experience been in interfaith work? Um, what exactly do you do when it comes to interreligious peace building? And how did you find yourself on this path? I was born and raised in the American South, uh, in the states of Florida, Alabama, and Georgia, far eastern corner of the United States. Uh, and I think most people have some preconceived notions about this part of the country and about 
the things that people here believe, uh, and one of the most common ones, uh, which is sometimes well-founded, is that uh, there's a strong air of uh, hostility to difference here, uh, that people are uncomfortable with interacting with those who believe things that are different from them, that look different from them, that act different from them, uh, that think different from them even. Uh, and I think that a lot of the work that I've been doing has been uh, to try to change that uh, and to try to you know, mold the American South uh, and more specifically uh, my home state of Georgia and hometown, I think I'd call it at this point of Macon, Georgia into a place where these different um, races and faiths and uh, ideologies are able to interact with one another in you know, a safe forum uh, where everyone is respected and tolerated and uh, where I think that realistically uh, everyone can just be who they are without having to worry about facing scrutiny or hostility from anyone else who they're talking to. Uh, and of course, the broader transformation of the American South is, you know, a mission which is going to take a very long time and which, uh, of course, need not be said, uh, has been one that people well before me have pursued and that people long after me will probably continue to. But I think that starting in my own local community and even at my local university, Mercy University, uh, trying to do this work uh, just to make it so that you know, these students from these uh, underrepresented backgrounds in a historically Baptist region can feel like they have a place where they can express themselves and to, you know, safely communicate with others about uh, their deepest held beliefs is a first step in the right direction. And I think as we go forward, uh, as I go forward, uh, what I want to be able to do is uh, to expand the scope of this group uh, and to make it a more visible presence on campus and something that can't just be uh, ignored or brushed aside and something which needs to be taken seriously. Uh, that's why I'm trying to run these events uh, like this Interfaith Book Club, but also regular weekly interfaith dialogues and uh, lectures and discussions uh, where people can come together and you know hear these different religious perspectives. Because I think that, again, being able to make things better starts with you know actually starting to do work in a local community and developing the resources here for it to be lasting and sustainable so that it can expand even after my time at Mercer is done. But I guess a little bit more about my work specifically and sort of what we've accomplished as this organization, uh, less about sort of the broad ambition of it, uh, would be that uh, this group, Bears Engaged Across Religions, uh, is working to provide opportunities for students to be able to uh, discuss religion and to learn about other religions again, in a space where, where that kind of conversation and thinking is encouraged. And we do that again through these discussions and book clubs and lectures and, uh, you know, other events. We've, we've taken a trip or two to local places of worship. Just recently, we went to a, uh, a mosque, and that was, I think, uh, an interesting experience for a lot of people. But uh, being able to talk to, to local faith leaders, I think, was something that opened a lot of eyes for people because... Uh, I think provides some more contextual information. The South is majority Christian, majority Protestant Christian, uh, and even from there, majority Baptist. And Mercy University itself is a historically Baptist institution. So a lot of people who come here uh, do so without having met someone who belongs to a different faith. And those who do will usually have just met, uh, you know, maybe a, a Catholic or uh, a member of the Jewish community, someone who uh, professes a faith which is perhaps more familiar and accepted in the American public conscience, but 
you know, when you come here, when you come to a college, it opens the door to be able to, to talk and to learn from Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists and uh, even, you know, people who, who, who profess faiths, which are less common than that. Uh, in, in our group, we actually have a member of the Baha'i faith, which I think is super cool. But, um, but yeah, I, I really think that uh, overall, uh, the mission is a pretty simple one and one that I think we've seen uh, executed elsewhere in the world. But uh, I think realistically uh, in this context, one which is difficult to establish. And I think that the work that I'm doing now is just trying to, <laughs> to make this established and to make it a, a presence on campus, which has the ability to continue to induce positive change in the future, even after I'm gone. I'm not sure if that answered everything that you <laughs> uh, wanted yeah, of me. That was, that, that, yeah, that was um, a very good introduction. I think I've also had a lesson in South America History 101, um, kind of. Um, I, I think it's been really useful to know. And um, I think for my own end, um, it's... It's a, it's a little bit different. It's a little bit um, of a different context where I grew up. I grew up in Nigeria. I was born and raised in Nigeria. And um, I was born in the South also. But um, the South is, um, especially the Southwest where I grew up, is a little bit different from the North and the southeast so while the southeast for example is majority christian and muslims are in minority there the north is majority muslim and christians are in the minority there but the southwest where i come from is very um, mixed so i grew up having both muslims and christians around me um even in my family i have family members who are muslims and family members who are christians and so it wasn't a very big deal to me but as I grew, as I um, interacted with others, especially people who came from these other parts of the country where it's a little bit more homogeneous than heterogeneous, I began to see some differences. And um, also some of these people have had experiences that were negative about people of other faith based on their own backgrounds, which I didn't have personally, but they did. So um, some people who lived in the North, for example, um, and, and not Muslims might remember times when there was uh, an ethno-religious crisis and their family was targeted because of their faith. And the same thing has happened to Muslims in Southeast Nigeria, and it still continues to happen to date. I mean, as recent as about two months ago, there was attack on the mosque and people, worshippers were killed while they were praying and a lot of them were injured. And these things continue to, to happen till today. But um, all of this was not the reason why I found myself in this work. Um, I just had a, a regular childhood and went to school and then um, I worked as a, a, a writer and editor and then I got a job that required me to move to the north of the country to work as an editor and publications officer for an organization there, and um, which was very exciting to me. And then when I um, joined this role, 
I then um, realized that the, the resources, the research material that I was editing were related to issues um, around religious peace building because that's what the organization um, works on. And the more I read these um, materials and had to edit them, the more I learned about the nuances, about the challenges, about the misconceptions, about people of other faiths that exist in our community and how this is exacerbating, conflicting a lot of communities and what we can do about them. So this kind of spurred me to um it, it piqued my interest in this area and um with time I just realized just like you said I'm um, having a vocational calling it was just like a calling that I, I want to continue to work in this area and for me in my context it's not just um religious um peace building as an interfaith but we also had the issues related to violent extremism, which is um, uh, a different kind of challenge, but also related. And so um, I've been working on these areas for um, the past seven years now. And then more recently, I think about three years ago now, um, so I have my son, who is now um, nine years old, was then about six years old. And then um, I, um, he asked me a question which got me thinking. He had done something wrong on that fateful day. I can't remember what exactly it is, but for, for example, let's say a child telling a lie, and then as a mother trying to um, correct the child, I go, oh, you're not supposed to say that you're not supposed to tell lies. A good Muslim child does not tell lies. And then he goes, mm, okay, mommy. So um, a good Muslim child does not tell lies. So it's Christian children that tell lies. And then I started, so I was like, oh no, Christian children don't tell lies. Like, um, good um, children, whether Muslim or Christian or whatever fit, would not tell lies. And so it's just wrong to tell lies. And then within the same period, he started asking these kind of questions that made it clear to me that to him in his own paradigm at that time, um, Muslim is opposite of Christian. And so it was just an exact opposite for him. So if a good Muslim child should be obedient to his parents, then that means Christian children are disobedient to their parents and that kind of logic. And I wondered, okay, where is this coming from? And then I realized the difference between my upbringing and his upbringing, because I was brought up in a mixed religious environment. I went to school with people from different tribes and different faiths. And But as time goes on, as generation changes, a lot of parents are sending their children in my country to private schools rather than public schools because the public school is not um, at the same quality. And most of these private schools are faith-based schools. So it's either a Muslim school or a Christian school. So the child goes to school and all of his classmates belong to the same faith. So if it's a Christian school, 
all his classmates are Christians, all his friends are Christians, all his teachers are Christians. He goes home, his neighbors are Christian. So he doesn't really know anything about the other. And by the time he becomes introduced to the other, perhaps by moving out and seeing other people, it's very easy to think that they are exact opposites. And so that for me really um, gave me concern as a parent because I imagined what the effect of this would be in the next 10 years when we have a bunch of teenagers who know practically next to nothing about the other, who have um, misconceived notions about the other simply because they didn't have the opportunity to interact with them, to get to know them, to see them as people like them. Um, and so um, that led me to create my own organization, which I call um, Acres of Peace. And the focus is really more working with schools, with teachers, with parents, with religious leaders to um, understand this challenge of helping children, um, catching them young, as we would say, to recognize the truth about people of other faiths, that they are good people like you are good people and you just happen to belong to different faiths. And right now I'm in the middle of um, writing a book for children and um, also early, early readers on this issue of recognizing the diversity of people within the human family by color, by language, by religion, faith and belief, and all of this is okay. And there are just two kinds of people in the world, good and bad, and they belong to every race and tribe and religion. And um, so people are not polarized on the basis of um, religion per se. So I think this is where I am at at the moment. Yeah, thank you for sharing that with us. I, I also wanted to ask uh, if you'd be able or be willing rather to elaborate maybe a little bit on uh, what the work you do looks like, because I know that we've, we've talked in the past uh, a bit about, um, I guess, these challenges that you've made to uh, these traditionally held religious arguments uh, against tolerance or against, uh, you know, cohabitation uh, that are raised by both Christians and Muslims in Nigeria. And I guess I would ask, um, you know, what exactly is that work looked like uh, alongside this, this broader educational campaign that you have uh, to teach children to be able to, to live alongside one another, Christian and Muslim? Um, I would ask maybe, uh, you know, you, you talk a bit about the education of adults as well and of the training of religious leaders to be able to combat or shut down these religious narratives, which are, you know, falsely uh, misused or which are falsely using uh, religion and, and misusing scripture to, to attempt to suggest that uh, violence is okay or that discrimination is okay or that marginalization is okay. Yeah, um, that's actually very important um, because um, unfortunately, 
Um, this happens both ways. Like I've mentioned before, there are a lot of misconceptions that Muslims, and I'm going to be particular about my context there because it may be different in other contexts, but where I come from in Nigeria, there are a lot of misconceptions that Muslims have about Christians, and there are a lot of misconceptions that Christians have about Muslims. And some people intentionally sometimes and unintentionally sometimes continue to perpetrate perpetrate these divisive and um, the, uh, discriminatory and marginalizing narratives. For example, um, when I was in the university um, as an undergraduate, I had a, a, a colleague who came from the Southeast. Now, my school is in the Southwest, which, like I mentioned earlier, is a mix of uh, Muslims and Christians, but the Southeast is majorly Christian. It's actually possible for you to find a 20-year-old man from Southeast Nigeria who has never interacted with a Muslim before, who has never seen a Muslim praying before. Who has, so um, that's very possible. And then this student came to study in the Southwest and um, he had a roommate who is Muslim. So this is his first time as a young teenager, a young adult, sorry, in the university, this is his first time actually um, living with or having close relationship with a Muslim. After some time of living together, one day out of curiosity, he asked his roommate, and he said, why don't you have Quran? And his roommate looked at him and said, what do you mean I don't have Quran? Like, don't you see me every morning when I'm reading my Quran here? Like, this is my Quran, and he, he pointed at the Quran, which is lying there on the shelf. It's been there um, all the while, and he reads it every morning, and it's like, and the friend was like, no, I'm not talking about a book. I'm talking about Quran, the Muslim's Quran, and he was like, yes, this is the Quran, and he said, well, this is not what we've been taught. What we've been taught was that um, the Quran is some form of idol, one kind of statue thing, and Muslims pray to one stone and things like that. So he was actually really surprised to learn that his, his friend had been reading the Quran every morning beside him all the while, and, and he never knew because he didn't even know that the Quran was a book that Muslims read. That's the level of misinformation. And the same thing um, happens the other way around. So um, basically, our work in this area has been to correct those misconceptions that people have about the other. But aside the misconceptions that they have about the other, we also have some misconceptions that are based on um, interpretations of religious texts within the faith that justify sometimes violence or aggression towards others, but sometimes it's not to the level of violence. It's just um, being unkind or nice or um not being very cordial or friendly with people of other faiths. And we have these narratives there in our communities. And so, for example, as a Muslim, you would be told that um, you should not greet a Christian first. Um, they should greet you first. Um, if they greet you with um, salam alaikum, which is the greetings of peace in Islam, that you should not respond wa alaikum salam the way you would respond to a 
Muslim that you should instead say wa so the response should be different. That if I need that a Muslim, a Christian should not be my best friend, for example, as a Muslim, that my best friend must be a, a, a fellow Muslim, not a Christian. And those guys, so these are narratives that do not ask you to fight or be aggressive or be violent towards people of other faith. But at the same time, it's these are narratives that makes it easy to discriminate and marginalize people of other faiths. And like I said, we have it both ways. So um, in order to address these um, narratives, the first thing we had to do was to compile them. Like, what are the narratives out there? And on the issue of relating with um, non-Muslims, we were able to gather 50 different questions and arguments and narratives regarding relationship with people of other faith from can we give them gifts can we accept gifts from them can we visit them can we have them as friends can we trust them can we have business dealings with them to things that are serious as do we have to fight them do we have to be against them so we had this 50 different narratives and then we responded to those narratives um one after the other from the islamic sources because this is important when you're trying to address issues like this and this is very important in any um, interfaith work one of the principles that i would like to share especially with people who are working with interfaith is that um often it is necessary to um solidify your intra-faith first so within your own first um, faith community you have to ensure that people have the right understanding declare the misconceptions that they have within the faith before you move to interfaith or interreligious engagement and um, that is usually sometimes it takes more time but it's usually deeper and more sustainable but when you just go to um bring it for example i say i want to organize a project and just bring muslims and christians together no intra-faith just bringing them together for interfaith um often it's just doing the program for program sake and people will take pictures and eat good food and go back home and there would be no real impact we wouldn't build bridges that are sustainable because people still have their notions and their prejudice and their um, misconceptions about the other but when we address those misconceptions internally first within the muslim um, faith separately within the christian faith separately people come to interfaith with a renewed sense of understanding about who the other is and how they should engage with them. So um, we prepared these responses um, in literature um, and also in um, audio recordings, video recordings. It's there on social media. Um, so we published a book, Muslim Relations with Christians, Jews, and Others, which was um, published by my organization, the Dawa Institute, in 2018. And we've um, done distribution of over 10,000 copies of the book in Nigeria. The book is also available for download on our website online. We also have recorded um, the explanation of these books and providing clarification to these misconceptions um, in audios and videos in seven languages. 
whether uh, a person is literate or they are the um, audiovisual type or the oral type, the message can get out. And then we also train religious leaders, build the capacity of the imams and um, teachers and lecturers of Islamic studies, Islamic law, teachers of local um, Islamic schools, which we call madrasa or Islamia with train all of them in um, this material so that first they are able to um, change their own perceptions about these issues and then they can pass the right message to the next generation because like I said earlier the next generation is actually very important and when they start having questions like my son had and he asked me if I didn't know better I could have perpetrated that um, wrong notion of, oh yeah, Christians are the bad guys, Christians are the ones who tell lies, and Christians are this and that. But when we all have the right understanding, we would be able to pass the right understanding to the next generation. So um, basically, this is what we've been doing on this issue so far. And um, I think for JP, I, I also have a question and um, I, I would really love to understand because like I've explained, my context is really um, a Muslim Christian context. So most of my interfaith work has been really Muslim Christian relationship. And for you, um, born and raised in America and living in America where um, most likely you have people from more faiths than um, just Muslims and Christians or Protestants and Catholic. Um, what does interfaith work look like? What does interfaith engagement look like when you have people from multiple faiths or people without um, any faith or belief at all? Um, in my own context, we would consider it a bit easier to do Muslim Christian interreligious work because um, there is the shared heritage of both religions being part of the Abrahamic faith. Um, for your own context, what does it look like when you bring different faiths together? I think I would go ahead and start um, by perhaps clarifying the context a little bit in which uh, the work that I do is able to take place, uh, which is that uh, the American South is, of course, majority Christian, majority Protestant, even majority Baptist, like I said earlier. So I find that a lot of the work that I do is, you know, not so much uh, interfaith in the traditional sense, uh, where it's trying to, uh, you know, reconcile this significant divide between, you know, maybe two or three groups of people, but uh, rather is is working to uh, reconcile these significant misconceptions uh, that are, you know, held by the people who possess the majority of the the social and political power in the area where I reside. Uh, and in that way, uh, I think that the work that I'm trying to do is to expose people who have been raised in this Baptist tradition and this religiously and politically conservative Christianity uh, to these other faith traditions and to show them that you know, there's more to the world than what they've been raised with. And in fact, there's, you know, significant beauty in religions like Judaism and Islam and Hinduism and Buddhism. And I think what I try and do in that sense is to use this, this interfaith group uh, as a way for different religions to be able to uh, say what they want to say to, uh, I guess, this, this majority Christian uh, environment 
uh, and to clarify these misconceptions that are often had about their faith uh, and to be able to work alongside them in practical contexts to ameliorate these, these social wrongs that are being perpetrated uh, for the most part by the Christian majority here. And I think that maybe one way that that work manifests in a, in a tangible sense is that we use a lot of these lectures as a way to bring either a member of uh, a local uh, minority religious community, uh, whether that be like an imam or a rabbi, to come in and talk about their religion uh, to this broader audience of Christians and, and mostly of those Christian Baptists about uh, you know, what it is that their faith really represents, the things that they have in common with Christianity, uh, the things that maybe they could find beauty in, uh, the things that they have, you know, a shared cultural or historical heritage in. Uh, and I think in that way, uh, the work that I do is, is more so uh, trying to, to, I guess, expose maybe this, this majority to everything that this religious minority has to offer and to get them to reconcile their own misconceptions about this, this minority and to be able to better understand it and, and not to fear it or try to push it away anymore. Uh, but I, of course, the work also goes in the other direction. We have this very diverse core of the group that I hope to be able to, to train uh, and, you know, who I hope to learn from and who I hope can learn from me uh, to be able to go out and, you know, apply the things that they've learned there in the real world uh, and to you know, if they're ever put in situations where, you know, they find that, you know, people are maybe perpetrating these misconceptions or saying things which are hurtful or harmful, uh, or sometimes maybe even encouraging a violence, I think we see sometimes uh, they can, you know, have the tools to be able to, you know, combat that and to be able to, to work alongside this, this Christian majority to, to be able to, you know, join them in that mission and to work alongside them. Yeah, that's interesting. I think your group would be quite an interesting mix, um, considering all the backgrounds and people that you have. Um, as it's usually said, um, there's beauty in diversity, and um, these diversities, um, yeah, I think one of the misconceptions that a lot of people have. Um, when it comes to inter-religious engagement, is that they think that it somehow leads to compromising on the tenets of your own faith and belief. And um, like it's usually said in the Nigerian context, that when we talk about interfaith, bringing Muslims and Christians together, um, so at the end of the day, we're trying to produce a new religion called Chrislam, which uh, brings some features of the two religions together. And that's not the reality. So um, engaging in interfaith re relations and dialogue and engagement does not in any way mean that you have to compromise on the um, dictates and tenets of your faith, that you have to water down your faith, that you have to convert to the other faith, uh, or that you have to um, try to convert the other person to your own faith. Um, that's not what, uh, what inter-religious engagement is all about. I think um, inter-religious engagement is about knowing um, the others, understanding where they're coming from, um, appreciating the good about them, 
um, because every um, faith communities would have those things that are, mm, I think that sounds good. <laughs> like, even if my faith does not require that of me, I think um, I appreciate that this faith community does this or have this um, requirement and things like that. And so I, I think um, it's also important that um, people understand what interreligious engagement really is and what it is not so that um, there isn't any confusion. And um, the reality of life is that um, no, no man is an island of their own. Nobody exists in a completely homogeneous um, society, especially in the global world that we live in today when everything is so, so super connected. Um, so interreligious engagement is something that we already do on a daily basis anyway. Um, we interact with people from different walks of life. Um, it's just that perhaps their faith does not matter um, with regards to the kind of interaction that we're having with them. So um, this is something that I think it's just important for people to um, understand and for those of us who are practitioners working in, in interreligious engagement to just uh, present it as something as simple as what it is relating well with people from across different faith backgrounds just as you relate well with people from across um, racial or ethnic or tribal or um, national or political background. So this is something that every human should be able to understand and live with the realization that um, in this life, people are going to be diverse and people will have different ideologies, different political views, different races and language and, and colors. And all of this just beautify our world. Um, there is a verse of the Quran uh, where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said that um, the diversity of our languages and color and tongues is only for us to know one another. And indeed, the most honorable amongst you in the sight of God is the one who is most righteous. So what matters most is piety and righteousness and God consciousness and trying to live life in a way that is um, morally upright especially and spiritually upright, especially for people of faith and spirituality. And also just the realization, which I think um, a lot of people do not have, especially people who belong to um faith that include um preaching and conversion and proselytizing kind of um where you want others to join your faith like islam so as muslims we have the responsibility to preach the beauty of the religion to invite others to the faith with wisdom and good exhortation as the quran says but at the same time, the Quran told us in the fifth chapter of the uh, that if God had so willed, he could have made all of mankind to belong to one religion. 
but it is out of his own infinite wisdom that he has made us into different religions and to each religion he has given their own way and their own laws and that is perfectly fine diversity of religion is part of the divine will of god i think this is something that a lot of people have not accepted which makes it difficult for them to be able to engage with people of other um, faith because they feel that um, those people should actually belong to their faith. So I, I think this is um, something that is just um, good for us as um, inter-religious peace practitioners to bear in mind in our interaction with people so we help them to understand that it's it's perfectly okay and you you don't have to change your own beliefs or anything like that you just have to be understanding and respectful of the religion and faith and identity of people of other faiths wow thank you so much um halima for sharing that very um, yeah, important point about what does interfaith engagement look like and does it mean we have to give up what we believe? Do we have to <laughs> adopt like new beliefs? And I think to an extent there may be a new belief in terms of like maybe it's new to believe that you can um, respectfully engage with people of different faiths. And so in that sense, maybe that's uh, maybe not a belief but a principle. Um, but yeah, I think um, that's really, really important. And um, yeah, I'm so inspired by both of you and the work that you're doing and the ways that you are really um, being peace catalysts in your communities and in your larger context as well. Um, I think that is the kind of engagement relationships and peacemaking that both of you are doing are what is going to change the future for um for both of your contexts and for, you know, our world as a whole, <laughs> because of course we have different um, countries, but we also belong to a larger global community as well. And so, um, yeah, really, really grateful to, to have the chance to learn from both of you. And um, yeah, I'm wondering, JP, did you have any other questions for Halima? Uh, yeah, I think just like one more. I did want to ask really quickly, uh, going forward, Halima, uh, what is it that you wish to do with your work or with yourself? Uh, you know, what kind of causes do you want to be able to engage with? Uh, you know, how do you intend to continue to develop this work? Uh, and really, I guess, just sort of in a general sense, uh, what do you think your future looks like from here? Yeah, thank you very much. Um, as you already know, I'm currently in the U.S. at the moment pursuing my um, master's in international peace studies. Um, hopefully, I plan to graduate by May, and I'm looking forward to that. Um, over the last two, one and a half years I've been on the program, I've continued to uh, maintain contacts and um relationship with my work back home and um that's something I still want to continue to do. Um during the summer I was able to travel um back home to Nigeria. I participated in some of the audiovisual recordings I talked about about um um relationship between Muslims and people of other faiths and um so that is something I plan to do. So even if I'm still here in the 
US. Um, with every opportunity I have to go back home, continue to produce these resources and um, also engage with um, local religious actors on the ground. Um, that's very important for me. I know that um, the field of peace building is one that um, it's, it's already um, my career path to put it that way. So, and um, with regards to religious uh, peace building specifically, it's something I'm passionate about. And so um, at the conclusion of my master's, I'll still continue doing what I'm doing. I'll still continue to um, invest time and resources into um, this very important work of educating people, both the young and the much elderly on these issues and um, clarifying misconceptions that um, people have about Islam and about people of other faith and encouraging peaceful coexistence um, between people, uh, between Muslims and people of other faith. So um, I think this is just the same path that I would, I see myself continuing on um, for as long as is possible. And I'd be interested in knowing what your plans are also. I know um, you're in your senior year now. And so <laughs> what's your plan for post-graduation? Um, I think that I am, you know, much like yourself, imbued with this calling uh, to pursue peace-building work further. Uh, and I think with that in mind, uh, the graduate schools that I've applied to, uh, divinity programs, I'm, I'm looking at hoping to synthesize, uh, I guess, my academic background in the study of politics and religion, and uh, I guess these, these ethical questions that surround things like war and peace and interfaith relations, and to apply that in a practical context and infuse it with this religious element uh, to, to go onward and, and do peace-building work in the world from this religious perspective and to combat uh, I think what I see as the, the misuse of religion and religious traditions uh, to inspire violence and hatred and division. Uh, and I think as I do so, um, I hope to be able to work beyond uh, my local context. Um, in fact, a few years ago, I had the opportunity to go on a, a service learning trip with my school to the Republic of Georgia, uh, the other one across the seas in the Caucasus. Uh, and while I was there, I had the opportunity to participate in uh, the wonderful peace-building work that's being led by religious leaders there, like Bishop Malka Sangashvili of the Evangelical Baptist Church of Georgia. Uh, and he works a lot with interfaith reconciliation and challenging uh, the use of rhetoric by these religious bodies in the country that have the this privileged uh, political status, like the Georgian Orthodox Church, to um, you know work towards a more tolerant and peaceful Georgia, uh, which is inclusive of all of its peoples, uh, including ethnic and religious minorities, and also the LGBTQ community, which has recently come under uh, great scrutiny by the church and the state, uh, uh, presumably as, as a sort of you know, political tool to uh, garner the support of the population. Uh, and I think I would like to be able to work in, in Georgia as well. Uh, a lot of my academic work, uh, my senior thesis focus on Georgia and the role of religion in its politics, uh, and looking at you know how we can work towards a better future there uh, where everyone is, is made to feel as a citizen of Georgia with, you know, equal rights and opportunities in that country. Um, 
so I'd hope to be able to get back over there and to, to work in practical peace building, uh, you know, to support the efforts of people like Bishop Sangalishvili uh, and these LGBTQ advocacy groups in the country uh, who are challenging these, these hateful narratives. Wow. Well, we can't wait to see your both of your futures unfold. And yeah, it's been really inspiring to hear from each of you. And I know that our audience is probably also very inspired as well. So thank you both so much. And I'm wondering if, if you were to leave our listeners with one word of advice or inspiration for this kind of peacemaking, and you've already, that's already been interwoven in what you've already shared, but um, if there is some kind of phrase or, or word of encouragement for our audience, what would that be? I think that really the, the biggest thing I would say is that there really is uh, a low barrier to entry on sort of this day-to-day peace building work. And I think it's something that anyone can participate in without any kind of formal credentials or training. You know, obviously groups like this, this reading group that uh, my organization runs are, are very good for equipping people with the skills that they need to handle maybe more complex issues and conflicts. Uh, but I think that to be a peace builder in, in maybe the most fundamental sense is really just to uh, you know, go about your day-to-day life with the, the spirit of peace within you and to work towards it uh, in everything that you do. So um, I look at the world around me today and I see um, the amazing technological advancements that the human race has been able to make, like um, in technology, in medicine, in space. And, like we just keep making leaps and leaps of bounds in these areas. But when it comes to what is so basic, as basic as living with others and in peace, accepting um, others for who they are and respecting their faith and beliefs, um, it, it's so sad and unfortunate that this is still a challenge for the human race in 2023. So um, I think my advice and my suggestion would be for everybody to continue to knit the social fabric of the society with love and peace. And um, like JP said, um, the golden rule, treating others the way you want to be treated, respecting others, even if you do not understand it, treating people as the humans that they are, and we are all humans before anything else. So I think um, it's important to just have it at the back of our minds that anybody you're dealing with is a human first and foremost before anything else or whatever beliefs or other social characteristics that they may have. And then treating them as humans hopefully would help us to make um, tremendous um, leaps in this area of life as well. That's so well said. Thank you so much for sharing that. That is what we're all about at Peace Catalyst, (laughs) learning how to love our neighbors um, across the board because we do all share uh, humanity. So thank you so much. Wow, it was so, so incredible learning from both Halima and JP about the amazing um, bridge building that they're doing and how they're fostering 
peace in their in their communities across religious differences and just bringing people people together around the table to foster relationships and friendships um, across those faith lines and it's really cool to hear from um, these young innovators <laughs> and Rick Love Award winners from 2022 about um, you know, what it looks like to faithfully pursue peacemaking in their communities as kind of, you know, young people. And I mean, I think you and I, Allie, would still be considered young people too. (laughs) (laughs) I hope so. (laughs) But like, particularly on your college campus, I think that, you know, that kind of leadership is so important and special and um, really paves the way for those who are also coming behind JP um, and of course for Halima too in her context, um, especially as a young woman um, who's leading, leading the path um, forward is just so inspiring. And I think really important to follow, to kind of even look up to these young leaders, young innovators and how they're approaching it and how can we like be inspired by, by what they're doing as well. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think there is just so much to be learned from kind of what you were saying, um, from both JP and Halima. And I found it interesting as they were talking and asking each other questions, how, um, they're obviously, their contexts are very different in terms of the people that they're surrounded by. Um, you know, JP's on a college campus, um, and just so such different, um, geographic contexts. Um, and so, but yet, you know, they were able, there was some overlap in terms of the, the peace building that they're doing and the models that they're using, the models of peace building. Um, and so I think that it just emphasizes that while context is very important and it will shift, you know, the way that we're thinking about, ways to catalyze peace in our communities, um, there is something to be learned from, um, you know, different global contexts and something that can be, you know, taken from that and applied to our own local communities and work. Um, and so, yeah, a, a fairly general observation there, but just something I was struck by and, um, reflecting back on. Yeah, that's so well said. And yeah, such a good way to thank you for framing that um, so well. And I think um, it's also cool to think about sort of like the larger context of why we do interfaith engagement and um, sort of like the bigger, the broader vision of like respect and dignity for everybody living in this world, um, for all human beings across the board. And then kind of like, and I think JP kind of touched on this a little bit, but sort of nesting then that interfaith peacemaking within that larger vision. Um, and so I think, yeah, it's it's really amazing to learn from them and see how we can apply, like you said, those different, um, yeah, like inspirations and practices for peacemaking within our own communities too. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more info about Peace Catalyst and to help support our peacebuilding work, please visit our website at peacecatalyst.org. 